Well, today we are finishing up our sermon series on the drama of Scripture. We've taken two weeks on each of the four acts of the drama of Scripture. So we took two weeks on creation. And creation describes the way things ought to be. And so remember, we've got it in your bulletin. Ought is, can, will. Creation describes the way way things ought to be by God's design. The fall explains the way the world actually is due to sin and its pervasive effects. You remember the, the serpent tempted the man and the woman and they rebelled against God and they chose, they chose to disobey. And so as part of the punishment, they were banished from the garden, but it was also an act of mercy because God did not want them to eat from the tree of life and stay in that fallen condition forever. And so they were banished from the garden. Ought, is, and then can. Redemption describes the way things can be through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus came and he announced that, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, God is in the process of taking over every square inch of his creation. And if you want to, to enter his kingdom and live under his reign, you need to repent, which means a radical reorientation of your life. You turn from self and from sin, and you turn back to God, and then you believe the gospel. You believe this good news that Jesus is the king who died for your sins. He bore your sins on himself on the cross and then rose again on the third day. And so you, you enter the kingdom and you live under God's reign and now you're a co-laborer with God. You participate with God in the expansion of the kingdom. And so you tell your story. You don't make things up. You just tell people what's happened to you. And so you share your story and you explain to them that, that this is available to everybody. There's no requirements. Only you, the only thing is you, want, you need to want it. You need to want to enter it. And so you enter the kingdom and now you can live under God's reign as well. Ought, is, can, and then will. Restoration describes the way things will be when God restores all things. Last week, Brian taught the first week on this, and, and he, he talked about the restoration of redeemed humanity. Everybody who trusts in Jesus one day will be fully transformed spiritually, will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, and will be giving a, given a restored, resurrected body, not unlike the body of Jesus at his resurrection. We have a little chart in your bulletin, it's on the screen as well, that explains the, the relationship between humanity and, and sin in the different acts of the drama of Scripture. So we're giving you these things, so hopefully it'll be good for you to remember and understand, but also to share with people. Somebody asks you, hey, what's the plot of the Bible? You can do it, ought, is, can, will. When it comes to humanity and sin, after creation, uh, the man and the woman were able to sin. They were given a command, don't eat from this tree. So they were able to sin if they desired, and they did. After the fall, humanity is unable to not sin. Now everybody, without exception, sins by nature and by choice. Redemption describes that those who, who trust in Christ are able to not sin. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. you. Now you have this internal ability to not sin. But at the restoration, and this is what Brian talked about last, last week, uh, if you're a follower of Christ, at the restoration of all things, you will be unable to sin. You will not be able to sin. The, the flesh will be removed. All temptation will be removed. The world and its systems will be remade. And so we don't become mindless droids like robots or something. Actually, you will become more full of yourself than you've ever been. 
And so uh, hopefully that's helpful to you. And we, we threw in the Latin there, no extra charge. <laughs> and so that's God redeeming part of creation, humanity. Today we're going to discuss the restoration of the rest of creation. Since all of creation was affected by the fall, all of creation needs to be redeemed, needs to be made new. And so God's plan of redemption involves fully restoring everything that was lost at the fall and then some. And so we're going to look at the anticipation of this. Uh, throughout Scripture, we see this anticipation of what God will one day do. And then we're going to look at the, the record of what the fulfillment of this will look like. But when it comes to anticipation, we see an anticipation of the redemption of people from every nation, every nation. And so this is really a partial fulfillment of what God commanded the first uh, couple, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so as we've talked about, that doesn't mean just have a lot of kids and spread out. It means take my image to every corner of the earth. And so this, was, this is the, the, the uh, command. Here we're talking about the anticipation of that actually happening. In the Old Testament, God had promised Abraham. He said, through you, your descendant, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's just too small a thing just to come for Abraham's family, but all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the prophets envisioned a day when all the nations of the earth would come streaming into Jerusalem and worship the God of Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus reiterated that the temple was designed to be, be not just a place where Jews come and pray, but it was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, for all the peoples. Remember, they had the court of the Gentiles. And then finally, after Jesus' resurrection, he met with his, his disciples, and his command to them was, go and make disciples among all the nations. Not just Jews now, it's, it's for all the nations. And so we see the anticipation that some from every grouping of people on earth will one day dwell together in perfect unity with God. And in, in one sense, this is, this is kind of the reversal of the judgment that God gave at the, after the Tower of Babel. Uh, there you, re, you can read it in Genesis 11. God confused their languages and he scattered them all over the earth. Well, this is the reversal of that. Now everybody's coming back, people, uh, people from every, every grouping of of, on earth is coming back into relationship with God. We also see the restoration of all creation. And, and so uh, as we've done throughout this series, we're blowing through a lot of scriptures. You can find this manuscript on our website uh, starting tomorrow, but uh, look these up when you get the chance. But since the ground was cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin, the curse needs to be lifted so that creation can fulfill its God-given role of being a place where he could dwell in perfect shalom, perfect peace, perfect wholeness with his people. And so this is the longing we see in both the Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 11, for example, Isaiah envisions a day when all creation will be at perfect peace. There's no more violence. There's no more death. It actually says, and this is, this is prophetic uh, language. It says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Okay? That does not happen today, right? It says that the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Okay? Don't try to figure out how this can be so. See that this is a picture. This is an image of absolute peace fills all of creation. When we come to the New Testament, we have passages such as Romans 8 in which creation itself 
is longing to be restored to its original design. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, when I first came a Christian, became a Christian, I heard people say over and over, the only thing that lasts forever is God's word and the souls of men and women. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, I just got that. But you read the scripture and you're like, no, actually, there's going to be a, a creation is going to be restored. And so we see this in many places, but Romans 8, for example, it says in verse 18, Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God or the children of God. N.T. Wright says, I love his translation, says, this is like all creation is on tiptoe, just waiting for this to happen. And so since the fall came through humanity, the, the restoration of creation has to wait until the children of God are fully restored. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. That was what we saw in Genesis 3. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so creation is not waiting to be annihilated so God can start over. No, creation is awaiting, is waiting to be made new. And you see this in, in uh, writings such as C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. You see that, that Narnia, even the weather, reflects whether good or evil has the upper hand. And you see this in, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And so the image of, of childbirth, as many of you know, uh, suggests present suffering, but with the anticipation of great joy. And so that's an apt image for creation's longing to be made new. We also see the anticipation of the defeat of Satan. And so the fall was the brainchild of Satan, and Satan is the adversary of God. He's, he's the one who led this rebellion in the heavenly realm, and we know that it took place sometime before Genesis 3. And so after the fall, God announced that even though Satan had won the battle in the garden, he would lose the war. There was a descendant from the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so there's this anticipation throughout Scripture that one day this, this rebellion that took place would be made right, not just on earth, but in the heavenly realm. And so there's this anticipation that, of the, this full restoration of all creation. And I want to talk about the fulfillment. It's described most fully in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And before we look at it, I just want to make a few comments about the book of Revelation. In so many ways, it, just, it, it really, honestly, it just grieves me because I feel like this, this amazing book has, has kind of been uh, co-opted by people who just want, to, just want to argue over details about the last days. But I would just say to you, the book of Revelation is not a puzzle to be solved. God does not expect you to figure out some mysterious hidden meaning behind symbols and images in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's been estimated there are over 500 allusions or references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So I think what God expects us to do is marinate our hearts and minds in the rest of Scripture. And so that when we read a book like Revelation, we'll say, yes, 
that's an image taken exactly from Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Genesis 1 or 2. And so uh, it's my understanding that the book of Revelation is, very, is, is viewed as a very practical, very nourishing book by the persecuted church. And so if your father or mother were tortured or imprisoned, if your brother were killed because of his loyalty to Jesus, you're not going to be interested in arguing about details of the end times. You need the, the very clear, obvious message of the book of Revelation that it is worth it to give your life for the lamb that was slain for you. If you're loyal to him, those who persevere will be saved. You need to know what the book of Revelation makes very clear, that those who are last in this world will be first in the next, okay? And so the book of Revelation is just, I'd encourage you, read it in one sitting when you get the chance, or two sittings, and just let the obvious meaning of it just wash over you. Don't don't try to figure it all out. There's a place to study it deeply and, and notice and understand things, but mainly just let it do its work in your soul. It, it, it just, it just uh, uh, inflames our imaginations. And so it's, it's known as apocalyptic literature, And the imagery is not meant to be taken in a literalistic way, but it is describing real things. It's describing real beings and real events. And so, for example, if you read in Revelation 19, 15, Jesus is charging out of heaven and he's on a white horse and a sharp sword is coming out of his mouth, okay? And so I don't believe that's a a literal physical description of what Jesus looks like, but it's a powerful statement that Jesus is going to slay his enemies with a word. He told us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so when he comes, he's coming with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And so we read Revelation with this, this understanding that powerful realities are being described. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, not surprisingly, we see the defeat of Satan is described and that should, should be Revelation 12 and, uh, and 20, Revelation 20 in your bulletin. But in Revelation 12, for example, it describes this. Again, this is, this is revealed. This is not stuff we figured out. It describes that one day there will be this, this battle in the heavenly realm between the archangel Michael and his angels and Satan and his demons. And Satan and his demons, his, his minions are over, they're overpowered. And just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they are cast out of heaven and they're thrown down to the earth. And they come to the earth and they pour out their wrath on those who are loyal to the one true living God. And uh, they, they persecute the followers of Jesus. You fast forward over to chapter 20 and Satan is described there as the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And then you come down to verse 10 and you read about the final judgment and the, pu- the punishment of Satan and his accomplices. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so that's the assurance. And we long for this day when Satan and those who, who hate God and those who hate his church are finally, uh, finally banished from the presence of God and judged. And then we'll spend the rest of our time on this, the, the restoration of all creation. 
And we see one more anticipation of this in Revelation chapter 5. And it's this fascinating heavenly scene where, where uh, this heaven, in the heavenly realm, uh, and it advances the plot of the Bible from where we are in our day today to that day when God unfolds his plans for the end of the ages. And we read this in Revelation 1, or Revelation 5, verse 1. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, which is God, a book written inside and on the back. Sometimes it's it's translated as a scroll. And it was sealed up with seven seals. So if you saw a scroll and it had seven wax seals on it, you could be assured that it had not been tampered with. It was authentic, and it had not been opened, and the contents were still uh, unrevealed. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And so if you keep reading, you'll see that this book or this scroll, as it's open, it represents the unfolding of God's plan. It represents God defeating his enemies and fully and finally establishing his kingdom uh, over all of creation. We read in verses 3 and 4, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then this was John's response. He says, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And so John wept and wept because there was no one able and there was no one worthy to unfold the plan of God. And you and I feel just like John did so many times in this world. We, we look at this, this world around us and we say, are we stuck in this condition forever? Is anybody, can, can even God himself, can God make all things new? Can he right all the wrongs, all the injustices in this world? And we look and sometimes it feels like Satan is more powerful than God. And sometimes it feels like death and disease have the last word instead of life and health. And sometimes it looks like evil is winning and good is losing. When was the last time you wept? You wept over the condition of this world. When was the last time you wept over the condition of your own soul or the condition of the people that you love? And you say, can anybody rescue us from this, this pain and this, this evil that just permeates this world? If you've wept, if you've lamented, listen in wonder to what John saw next. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. He didn't expect that. A lamb who was, was slain, had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's why we're praying next Sunday night. The prayers of the saints are poured out. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so this anticipates the fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. Abraham, a descendant from you, in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. This represents and anticipates a fulfillment of the great commission. You have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are now worshiping the lamb in the heavenly realm. And so the revelation assures us that this will happen. The fulfillment of these things is described in the the latter chapters of the book in Revelation 21 and 22. And we don't have time to to make many comments about what we're going to read here. But notice as we read that John is describing a place that is very much like the Garden of Eden. Uh, One of my professors used to call this, it's back to the future, okay? What you see in the early chapters, you're going to see in the late chapters as well. And it's a place where God is dwelling among his, his people. The main difference, number one, there's no serpent, okay? He's been banished. And number two, there's no sin. There's really no possibility of sin. Look at Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is the fulfillment of the longing of creation that we read about in Romans chapter 8. And creation is released from its slavery to corruption after the redemption of the children of God. And it's called the new Jerusalem. Why? Well, in the old covenant, the old Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, that was God's address. You want to find God? Go to Jerusalem. And by the way, you go to the temple and you, you, you look toward the holy of holies. That's where God dwelled among his people. Now there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. It's a new Jerusalem. God dwells among all his people. He can dwell within us, uh, among us, in a comprehensive way. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. You, you turn over to chapter 22, and John continues this vision. And what we're going to see, we haven't really seen this. You see it earlier in Revelation, but otherwise you see it, well, you see it in Proverbs, but otherwise you haven't seen this since the early chapters of Genesis. It's the tree of life. This is the tree that Adam and Eve needed to be protected from. But look at the the availability now. 
Revelation 22.1, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its streets. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Do you know any trees that yield its fruit every month? This, this tree is going to yield its fruit continually. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so now we have a right, those who know God have a right to eat from the tree of life. It's not a threat. It's not a a liability anymore. We can eat from the tree of life. And it it bears fruit continually, and it bears fruit for all of God's people. Twelve kinds of fruit for the twelve tribes, the twelve apostles, and it brings healing for the nations. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And so God is in the midst of his people, and they are enjoying face-to-face fellowship with him. And notice, they, you, if you, you live in the kingdom, if you belong to Jesus, uh, you will reign with him forever and ever. And understand, this is not a new idea. This is the, the creation mandate. God told uh, Adam, he said, you are to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the seas, and everything that crawls on the earth. Revelation tells us one day we will reign We don't do very good at ruling right now. You've noticed that? But in that day, when all things are made new, we will reign with Jesus forever and ever. And so Revelation assures us this this is reality. This is what will be true. This is what will happen. And so how do we respond? Well, I can't begin to to lay out all the ways that that we might respond. At the core of it, we ask the question, is my life right now compatible with what that condition will be then? Am I the type of person who cries out, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do we want that? Do we cry out to God for that? Do we long for the day when we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come, come? Do we want that? Do we want that life, that world, that reality? And so there's all sorts of, all sorts of responses. But this morning, I want us to respond the way that we see people primarily responding in the heavenly visions in the book of Revelation. I want us to respond with worship. I want us, if you have a will and a mind to do so, I want you to cry out, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. And so we're going to do that, first of all, through music. We're going to sing a song. It's a powerful song that reflects much of what we've talked about today. And then we're going to worship through the Lord's table. The lamb who was slain, his body was given, was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would free our hearts to worship you. God, we pray that our faith would grow, that our longing for that day would grow. God, if there's any of us here today who have not entered the kingdom, I pray, God, that 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 person would know that it's an open invitation. The lamb was slain for you. 
that that person would turn to you in simple faith, turn from him or herself, his or her sin, and turn back to you in faith and believe the gospel, enter the kingdom, and long for this day. And so, God, give us freedom to worship you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray.